How's it going? Thanks, Neil, for uh, filling in for me last week when I was out. Uh, we were up in Santa Cruz celebrating the uh, gender reveal of my sister-in-law's new baby. They're having a girl, so we're excited. Sorry. Um, a lot of you, when we said we're going to a gender reveal, told us don't start a fire. So thank you for that great advice. We did, we did not start a fire, so I think it was a successful event. We are continuing today our, our series on the life of Moses and, and the Exodus story and taking a look at how God uses that story to reveal to us his glory and to reveal to us different things about himself. In the first week, we took a look at Exodus chapter 3 and 4, the story of the burning bush. The main thing we focused on there is that God is a promise keeper. He keeps his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. We also saw in that story how Moses was just inadequate. He was inadequate to, to rescue Israel from their slavery in comparison to God. God is the one who is adequate, far, far more than adequate. So our application that first week was that we need to move from asking, who am I? Because I'm inadequate. I am not enough. I cannot do it to asking, who are you, God? Because God is the promise keeper. He is the eternal I am. Then the next week, we looked at the story of the 10 plagues and the Red Sea in Exodus 7 through 14. And the main thing we focused on there was God's power. His power that's far above anything else. Because God is using the plagues in the Red Sea to demonstrate that he is superior over nature, history, any other spiritual force, and even the human heart. And our takeaway there was that in response to that, we need to submit to God. We need to submit because he is above all things, his power is unmatched, and he has the power to judge, but he also has the power to save. So we ought to submit and not harden ourselves against his ways. Now today, we're going to take a look at what happens after Israel leaves Egypt in the second half of the book of Exodus. I think when we think about the Exodus story, we tend to think it ends at the Red Sea once they get through and escape Egypt. But that, that's not where the story ends because God did not free Israel from slavery just so they can go out and, and live life however they wanted after that. He freed Israel for a purpose, that they would worship him and be with him. I haven't been focusing on this in the last couple weeks, but when, when Moses is confronting Pharaoh saying, let the people go, he says, let my people go so that they may sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. Other times he says, so that they may serve me. God freed the people that they may serve him, sacrifice him, worship him, essentially. That is the purpose that God freed them for. We know from scriptures like Romans 12.1 that worship is not just singing songs to God. It's, this, it's an all-encompassing lifestyle that we live with God at the very center, in his proper place, might I add, at the very center of our lives, us living life in obedience to him, laying down our lives for him. And so God's intention for the nation of Israel is that they would worship him and be in his presence as a set apart and chosen people. And that's what the second half of Exodus is all about and what we're going to be taking a look at today. And what we're going to see today is that God is revealing to Israel and to us through these through these chapters that he is irreplaceable. God is irreplaceable. There's nothing that can take his place in our lives. And he's going to be revealing that to us through two themes, the theme of worship and the theme of his presence. So to catch up on the story, we left off in Exodus chapter 14. God has parted the Red Sea. Israel has escaped through. And in chapter 15, Moses, Miriam, and the people sing a song of praise to God, thanking him for this. And then in the second half of chapter 15, all the way through chapter 18, we see Israel journeying across the desert to Mount 
Sinai. Uh, one of the major themes we see here is God's provision. If there were a fifth message in this series, it would be that. Because um, we see in these chapters God cleaning dirty water so that the Israelites can drink that. He provides the bread from heaven, the manna. He provides quail for them to eat. He provides water again out of a rock. He helps them defeat a nation called Amalek. So God is showing us again and again through this part that he is a provider. He is the, provi- the provider for Israel as they're heading across the desert. Um, he's protecting them. As they, as they go out of Egypt. And then finally in chapter 19, we get to Mount Sinai. Now this is the same place where God spoke to Moses at the burning bush way back in chapter three. And if you remember from chapter three, verse 12, God told Moses, this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And now we're here. And God is a promise keeper, like we've talked about. He made it happen. Now this part of the story in the second half of Exodus, it's pretty complicated narratively. There's a lot going on. So we're going to cover a lot of things at a, at a high level. We're not going to be able to go into a lot of detail on certain parts. Um, as always, I encourage you to go after this and read it for yourself so you can see all that that we're not going to cover today. But as we're going through, as I mentioned, we're going to be paying special attention to the two themes, the theme of God's presence and worship, proper worship of God, because it's through these themes that God is going to be showing to us that he is irreplaceable. So we're going to start reading in chapter 19, a little longer passage here, but this is going to set the scene for us, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, so about three months, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and then camped in the wilderness. Now, quick observation here. Wilderness is repeated three times already. This is already emphasizing the fact that they are just alone in the desert right now with nothing around them except God. They are alone in God's presence. God is the focus here, his presence. Into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We go on in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And goes on a little more in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported to the, the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So here we see God is proposing to enter into a covenant relationship with the people. It's just like a marriage proposal, right? God wants to enter into this special relationship with Israel where they get to benefit from the from being in this covenant relationship, from being this chosen people. We see a treasured possession. There'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And all these things are pointing to the fact that God wants to have this unique relationship with them, that, we, that they would be set apart because God is with them. And in return, we see Israel's side of the deal. They have to obey God. Right? They have to live this life that revolves around him. They have to have true and proper worship of him as he rightfully deserves as God, the creator of everything. That's the arrangement that God is proposing here. And the people are all for it, right? They wholeheartedly say, yes, we will do this. 
And so God says he is going to come, come to them and be in their presence. So let's read on in the second half of verse 9. When Moses told the words of the peop- uh, people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them uh, today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Let me go on in verse 13. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds, and remember this part, because this is important. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So God says at some point he's going to invite them up. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So the idea here is, right, God gives Israel two days to consecrate themselves, clean their garments, abstain from sexual intercourse, essentially get ready. Get ready because he is coming. He is coming down to them on the mountain. And in verse 16, we see this happen. On the mountain of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So now this is the first of many times throughout these passages that we see a description of what God's presence is like here with smoke and fire and thunder. And and the idea is this is highlighting to us just the the gravity of the presence of God, this awe-inspiring view of what it's like to be in his presence. Again, we're seeing here his, his might and his power. There's no one like him. Nothing can take his place. He is irreplaceable for, for there's no one like God. And this staggering appearance of his presence shows us this. The other thing, this is showing Israel that the commitment they just made is something to take seriously. God's not messing around. He was serious when he said the things that he said. So God is something to approach with awe and reverence. And, you know, the same is true for us today. You know, we also get to be in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. That is not something to be taken lightly. We ought to approach that with awe and and reverence, respect him, fear him even, because he is God far above us, unlike anything else that there is. Now, an observation in verse 17 Um, The people don't go up the mountain, right? They stay at the bottom. Even though in verse 13, God said all of them were to come up, but out of fear, they they stay back. God wants these people to be a kingdom of priests. We saw that before, in which all of them are interacting with God directly. That is what a priest does, right? He interacts with God directly, but instead, due to fear, they keep a distance between themselves and God. They, They stay out of his presence. They stay down from the mountain. Only Moses goes up. And this, this is going to be foreshadowing to us on some things that are going to come later. Although the people are invited into God's presence, they do not go. So Moses goes up alone as mediator of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. And now is where we're going to speed up a little bit and cover some chapters at a high level. Right after this, in chapter 20, God delivers the Ten Commandments. He audibly speaks them from the mountain. There's going to be a chart here that go them and all the um all the the references there you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself a carved image an idol 
right? You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. And right, what God is doing here is he's establishing with Israel, when I said obey, this is what I meant. This, these are the terms of the cover, covenant, the, the marriage proposal, if you will. If, if worship is this all-encompassing way of life, living with God at the center, this is what it looks like. This is the distillation of what it means to worship God. This is what obedience looks like. And then after this, in, at the end of chapter 20 and through chapter 23, God gives this long discourse of a bunch of other laws. And one of the main things he's talking about here is proper worship. He starts this discourse with laws about how to build altars and things like that. He ends with laws about the Sabbath and feasts that Israel is supposed to have in worship of God. In the middle, there's some other laws about things like social justice and restitution. But the big theme here is this is how you worship me. This is what God is trying to communicate to Israel. This is how you worship me properly in your religious rituals and how you relate to each other. In every single aspect of life, this is what it looks like. And I'm God. I get, I get to decide that, right? Chapter 24, the covenant is ratified. Moses tells the people the laws that God had laid out for living as a covenant people. And they say, again, yes, we will do this. Basically, I do in the marriage proposal, right? We'll do it. That's what they're saying. And at the end of chapter 24, we see some more descriptions of, of God and his presence. First in 24, 9 through um, 11, and then also in verse 17. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's sons. And 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, a sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And later in verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Now, what does verse 10 mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Interestingly, it's, it's, it's a little different from the other descriptions we've seen, the smoke and the fire. This is kind of different, but no idea what this was like. That's kind of the point, right? This is just so awesome and, and just above anything else we know that words really cannot describe what these people saw. Whatever picture you have in your mind, it's not doing it justice, right? God is so far beyond anything we can imagine. Nothing can replace him, is the point. He is irreplaceable because he is so far above. But the fascinating thing is, here is this humongous, far above anything we can imagine God, yet he is choosing to have close, intimate fellowship with these normal, regular, everyday people, Right? And he's in their presence. That is amazing that, that they get to do that. And the only one worthy of worship is also a God who is personal. He desires fellowship and, and personal intimacy with us. He wants to be with us. That's what this is showing. And this theme of close personal fellowship is continued in the next chapters, chapter 25 to 31, in which God gives Moses very, very detailed instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent where God's presence would dwell and it would be the center of worship for the, for the Israelites as they were in this covenant relationship. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God tells Moses why, why, why they're building this tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right? That is the point. God wants to be in their presence. But that is his purpose in rescuing Israel from slavery. It's not so that they can go out and live life however they wanted. 
His purpose was that so that they would live lives of worship to him and live with him in their very midst. No other thing in the universe deserves that spot. God is irreplaceable. He's the only one who deserves that. And so for seven chapters, God gives Moses these very, very detailed uh, descriptions on how to build the tabernacle and all the images inside. Here's a, just a picture of what it, looks, what, what it might have looked like. Um, so he tells them how to build the Ark of the Covenant, the curtains, the altar of incense, the lampstand, all these different things that are going to be used in worship to God. And there's a, there's a lot of detail here. It's seven full chapters of just straight details on how to build this, every single little specification. You know, we have a God who cares about details. That's what that's showing. And I think if any of you have tried to read this before, it's very easy to glaze over that. And why, why, I think, why is this here? But if you do, you'll miss the point. Because the point of this is there is deep symbolism in each of these objects that is meant to remind us that when we're in the tabernacle, remind Israel that they're in, when they're in the tabernacle, they're in God's presence. Because if you look at the details of the tabernacle, they're meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. It's all pointing us back to the Garden of Eden. This is the last time that God dwelt with the people in unbroken fellowship. After the Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right, access to God's presence was lost. They were cast out of the garden. God set a guard um, in front of the garden. They were cast out. But God's promise through Abraham's family is that his presence would be accessible again through this covenant relationship. That is the, that is the blessing of God, that how Abraham's going to bless all the nations, is that God's presence would be accessible Again, so we see in the description of the items, different things like the cherubim, so the angels on the Ark of the Covenant and on the curtains, the lampstand is meant to look like a tree, a flowering tree. Um, There's references to all the gold and the jewels, just like there were gold and jewels in in the Garden of Eden. Everything is pointing us back to that. That's what God is reestablishing here. He's living again. The intention is he's living again in their midst. Even the language in this section and the later sections of building a tabernacle mirror the creation account. If you take a look, there's seven times God declares things in building the tabernacle, seven days in the creation, things like that. But all this is, all this is to say that God is using this to reveal his purpose. He is irreplaceable. There is no one like him. And so he puts commandments and systems in place that the people of Israel can properly respond with proper worship. That is the idea, and live in his presence once again. And it's this, this beautiful picture, I think, of how God intends human life to be lived, right? in close, personal, unbroken fellowship with him, that all would have access to that which is irreplaceable in our lives, God himself. He is the most valuable thing, and he is available to us. That is a beautiful thing. And this sets the stage for the wedding feast to begin The people have said, I do. Moses is going to come down the mountain with the laws and instructions. They're going to build the tabernacle and everyone's going to worship. It's going to be great. They're just going to get to celebrate with God in their midst and experience the joy and celebration and freedom that comes with that. It's a beautiful picture and it's just about to be totally shattered by what Israel does next. Because in chapter 32, Israel brutally rejects the covenant as they attempt to replace the irreplaceable God with the golden calf. So we're going to zoom back in now and take a look at this part in more detail. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed, he was up there for 40 days. When Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
goes on in verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Yahweh there, right? Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's just a a horrible scene, right? After all this beautiful imagery of the presence of God and the worship of God and God's desire to live life in their very midst, they break the covenant. They break the first two commandments. While Moses is literally up on the mountain ratifying this and talking to God about this, they replace God. And rather than this celebration of joy and freedom and being in God's presence, they resort to debauchery. Um, the word play there, they're not playing pickup basketball or something. It has the connotation of, of sexual immorality. They're just throwing it all away. What should be a beautiful wedding feast to celebrate the covenant and this new relationship that they're entering into with God has turned into a gross display of sin, infidelity. And, and the question I think this brings to mind is, what happened? How did it get to this? What happened? They literally just saw God, Yahweh, free them from Egypt. They saw him feed them across the way to Mount Sinai and protect them. They heard his audible voice give them the Ten Commandments not 40 days ago. Saw the fire and smoke on the mountain and said, we will obey you. So how did it come to this? What happened? Well, in Psalm 106, verse 19 to 22, we get a little more insight into what's going on with Israel at this time. They made a calf in Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot God is what happened. They forgot what he was like. They forgot what he had done. And so they exchanged the glory of God, this irreplaceable God, for this cow, right? For a lesser, far, far lesser image. And it's almost laughable, I think. You know, up on the mountain, the the fire is still there. The smoke is still there, right? The, The elders just saw this beautiful vision of God that we don't even know what it quite is, this path of sapphire under his feet. And here the people are laughing and dancing and and defiling themselves around a, a cow. Nowhere near what God is like. Nowhere near what God is like. And I think here we need to take a step back from this story. Because I I think to our modern understanding, this is just ridiculous. How could they do this? How could they do this? This concept of of an idol and building images of animals to worship is just so foreign to us. No one is convicted to tear down that cow in your backyard right now. We, We just don't have that today. And I think it's so easy for us to look at this and just shake our heads. Like, Israel is just so stupid. Of course God isn't a cow, you know. But this is exactly what we do too. Not physically. We're not building idols. But in our hearts, we all do this too. Whenever we fail to worship God properly and try to replace God with something else, we do this too. And a desire to get rich, a desire to live a certain sinful lifestyle, any attempt to live with anything else, at the center of our lives. We forget God too, all the time. God is irreplaceable. Only he belongs on the throne. Only he belongs in the center of our life. But we forget that and we act as though other things can fill that 
spot. Other things are more important than God, and so we turn to other things. Maybe not a golden cow, but we all replace God all the time with, with other things that we think are more important. That is just as evil as bowing down to the statue, just as wicked. It doesn't even have to be another object or thing. We can replace God with a lesser version of God in our minds, right? A God that we just pull out of our pocket whenever we need something and put him back in there when we're done. God that's less serious about the sin we deal with, a God that we can use to advance our, our political views or our own agenda, a God that we fashion into whatever we want and whatever is convenient to us and what we want in our lives. God has revealed himself to us so clearly in scripture. We know what he is like. We have the Bible. We know. We know that he is so far above us, irreplaceable, and yet we try to define him however we want, however best fits our, our own agenda. That seems to be what's happening here in this passage. If you, if you haven't studied this passage closely, you might think that Israel is just trying to replace God with some other deity, whatever that deity is, this cow deity. But that may not be the case. So in the translation um, here, if we go back actually a couple slides to verse 1 and 4, the translation that I'm using is ESV. And in there we see plural gods, make us gods. These are your gods. Um, but there's debate as to why gods is plural here. In, in the NASB, for example, it's not. It's make us a god. He's, this is your God, singular. Um, some people think it's the royal we, perhaps. There's a lot of debate around that. In verse 4, Aaron says that these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Surely no one thought that a different God did that after they just heard Yahweh himself speak from the mountain. Um, later in verse 5, Aaron calls for a feast to Yahweh. So it doesn't seem like they're trying to add another God to their pantheon here. What it seems like is they want to worship Yahweh, but they want to do it however they want to do it. Not how he has ordained in his commandments. They want to do it in a way that makes more sense to them. They're trying to fashion Yahweh into something more agreeable to themselves, something that they're more comfortable with. Right here they're at Sinai, and they have these awesome manifestations of the presence of God, this fire on the mountain, this smoke, the awesome power, and they're afraid, right? They stayed back. They didn't go up the mountain because they were afraid. You know, what are they to make of this God who appears in, in fire and these awesome displays? But an idol is something they understand, right? Back in Egypt, they, they saw this all the time. Maybe easier to grasp this, this God if he's a, a, a cow in front of us. And you know, a cow represents power and strength. That's why Egyptians had gods that look like cows. It's not like that, but the idea is they're, they're forming and, and choosing to worship God how they want to worship God not how God has ordained. And we, we do this too. We can do this too, right? Rather than trust that the God that is revealed in the Bible is the true God and, and whatever he says is, is right and we can trust that he is good, we replace him with other things that make us more comfortable in, in our sinful desires. Some lesser version of him and, and in the extreme, we don't even follow him at all. Yes, Israel was extremely foolish. They horrifically messed it up here. But we are not above this. I right, have the same group of people who literally saw God descend on a mountain in fire can forget him. Surely we can too. Surely we can forget God too. I haven't seen that. I can surely forget God too. God is irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. Living life in any way that doesn't accurately portray him and put him in the center is just a poor replacement and is idolatry. That's what idolatry is. 
And so God rightfully responds in, in righteous anger to this, and he wants to destroy Israel completely. But Moses intercedes for the people. And what follows in the next chapter is five sessions of intercession, essentially. Five times Moses intercedes. And it's interesting, it's a little Bible fact here, interesting parallel structure, because in Exodus 3 and 4, we saw five excuses from Moses on why he shouldn't go to Israel. So we see a little bit of growth here from Moses. He's understanding more that you know, God is irreplaceable. But Moses intercedes. And God relents. He doesn't destroy the people, showing his great, great mercy right, and patience and love. Um, but in chapter 33, he says this in verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God here says, you know, to Israel, go take the land. He's keeping his promise. He is a promise keeper. They are still going to get the land. He's not going to change that. But he's not going to go with them. Now think about what God is offering here to the people. The promised land. Earthly prosperity, right? Everything they could want, every physical thing, this land flowing with milk and honey, after years and years and years of oppression as a people, they would have a life of bounty. That is the offer. But God won't be with them. So how do they respond to this, to this offer of, of earthly um, prosperity? Well, in Exodus 33, 4 through 6, we see this. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. I think that is a very powerful verse, verse 4. This disastrous word. This is a disastrous word. Earthly prosperity, the offer of earthly prosperity is the worst possible thing imaginable to them. Why? Because God isn't going to be there. God isn't going to be there. Right? They're finally starting to get it, that God is irreplaceable. Nothing compares to him. Nothing. There's nothing more valuable than his presence, even amazing earthly prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey, everything they could want to live in bounty. doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. That is, I don't know, staggering to think about. To me, I remember the first time I read this verse, it just leapt off the page. Because I think so often I want prosperity, right? I want to succeed. I structure my life in such a way that I can get what I want. And so to me, this seems like a very, very enticing offer that God gives. But if God isn't in it, it is a disastrous thing. If you have all the success, and all the money, and all the lifestyle, all the power, everything you could want in the world, and do not have God, you have nothing. God is irreplaceable. He is invaluable. He is everything. God is everything. So Moses, again, here, one of the five intercessions, he intercedes in Exodus 33, 15 through 18. And he, Moses, said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Um, this last verse, please show me your glory is, is the verse that this series is, is named after. Moses wants to know God. Moses wants to know God, not some lesser version of God, but the true and only and irreplaceable God, whatever he's like. Moses wants to know. He wants to see it. He wants to know God fully. He doesn't want to go anywhere without the presence of the true and only irreplaceable God because he understands that makes the people of God distinct. That is the blessing that God is with them. God is with them. Moses understands that there's nothing better than that, nothing better than his presence. There's no, no other thing worthy of our, of our worship, of our devotion, of, of building our lives around than God. And Moses wants to live life with God at the absolute center. And after this intercession, God agrees to go with them for this true and only and irreplaceable God desires to be with us, to dwell among us, that we would worship him and that he may dwell in our midst. He's accessible to us. And that is amazing, right? So what does that mean for us today? Well, we need the attitude of Moses and not the attitude of the people. The people were hesitant to enter the presence of God. They did not go up the mountain. And in the end, they forgot what God was like. Right? They forgot. They didn't know him well enough. And so they think that this cow, this lesser, far lesser replacement is, is enough. It's good enough. Moses, on the other hand, goes up the mountain. Moses asks God to show more and more of himself. Moses wants to be with God and wants to know God fully and doesn't even want to be anywhere where God isn't. Whatever God is like, Moses wants to know. Show me your glory, he says. And God indeed does that later on. It's quite a change from where Moses was at the beginning of Exodus when he's making up all these excuses not to go. So for us, we too need to get to know God the true God, the irreplaceable God. We need to make this a priority in our lives. We need to seek him out and learn about him and, and do whatever we can to be with him. That's why these daily spiritual disciplines that we talk about so often here at CIV are so important. It's because through reading the scripture and prayer and all these things that we get to know God for, for what he really is, what he's really like, not what we think he may be like or what culture says he's like, but the true God. And more and more we get to see that the time, uh, taking the time to be in his presence every day and every moment, really, realizing he is always with us and that there's nothing better, nothing worthwhile to center our life around. It is when we're not daily engaging with God, when we're not doing these things, not reading the Bible and praying, that we start to forget, right? We start to forget what he's like. We try to start to live life without God, and that's when idolatry follows. We start to prioritize work, lifestyle, other things, because we think that's where life is, but it's not. Life is with God. He's irreplaceable. We begin to water down God, what, what God is like with our human desires and our traditions and all that, but that's, that's not what he's like. And so our true and proper worship can slip away over time. Our time with God can slip away over time. We forget. That is not the life that God wants for you. That's not the life that God wants for us. We see so clearly in the scripture, his desire is to dwell in our midst. His desire is to be with us. This awesome God who descends on mountains in fire and has this sapphire thing that we don't even know what it was at his feet wants to be with us, wants to be in our midst, wants our life to center around 
him. That is amazing. That is amazing that we get to do that and something we cannot forget. I love how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 9. He says this, whatever gain I had, I count as, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, uh, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And there is nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus and walking with him. Everything else is, is trash in comparison. It's what Paul is saying here, because he's irreplaceable. Nothing can replace him in our lives. So the application for us today is what do you need to do to change in your life so that you can start living like this is true? Because I'm sure we all have something. I'm sure we all have something. So spend some time this week thinking about that question in the coming days. How can you change things in your life so that you do not forget God. Rather, you live with him in true and proper worship in his presence with him as the center of our lives because he is irreplaceable and he is the only one worthy of our worship. So let's pray. God, uh, you reveal yourself to us in scripture and that we can know what you're like. Um, and thank you that the the picture you give us is, is so clear that you are loving and kind and merciful just, um, righteous, all-powerful. All these things we've been talking about, holy, that's we're going to look at next week. God, thank you so much that you want to be with us and that you've provided a way through Jesus. Despite all of our sin, um, that could be atoned for through Christ and that we could be with you, not just now, but forever in all eternity in heaven. Lord, thank you so much for your forgiveness. And thank you so much for these examples in scripture where we can see your awesome power, your awesome might, but also your awesome desire to be with us in our, in our presence, that we can be with you and worship you. So God, I pray today as we go forth that we would, we would do this as, as you always intended, that we would get to know you accurately and fully, that you would reveal yourself to us, each and every one of us today, and increase our understanding. And God, that you would be with us. Please help us, Lord, to do that because we need your help. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.